Take your Bibles, please, and join me in Psalm, the book of Psalms. We're going to chapter 8. While you're turning there, if you have a piece of paper with you, I want to give you a quiz. So you got a piece of paper, got a pencil, you got somebody sitting next to you who's smart. That'll all help you out, okay? If not, feel free to get up and find somebody. No, don't do that. You'll offend individuals. Here's what I'm going to give you. These are nicknames, epitaphs, some brief descriptions of some people within the history of our country. And so I want you to write down who are we talking about. Now to help you out, I'll give you the names of the peoples, but not in order. So you take a minute, two minutes, and write down who fits which one of these descriptions. Feel free to talk and compare with one another. Oh, you guys are good. Let's see how you answered. Father of the country. Oh, uh, you're good. Great order. Let's look at the lady with the lamp. Florence Nightingale. Father Ivones. Ooh, look how good you are. World's fastest man. Traitor. Friend of God. Yeah, great emancipator. There you go. World's greatest gymnast. I have a dream. Swedish Nightingale. You knew that because you watched the movie. Okay. Man after God's own heart. Oh, man, you guys are good. Okay. So I don't even have to bother preaching today, right? Okay. Let's talk a little bit more. Just brief this morning. We started a series last Sunday, Man After God's Own Heart on David. Since we're doing communion, I thought I'd not do the historical, but show exactly what he's talking about, why he came to be called this. And we know that it's revealed, his heart is revealed in music and poetry. We understand that because music and poetry, that gets us in the heart and brings up emotions. David wrote a lot of the Psalms. One of those that stands out the most is Psalm chapter 8. Psalm 8 is an amazing psalm. It reads this, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who hast set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hand. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fall of the air, the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. What a beautiful passage. What a beautiful text. The passage is dealing with one of the life's biggest questions that he asked right in the middle of it. What is man? Now, this is being asked in universities. This is being asked by scholars. You know, where did I come from? Where am I going? Who am I? And what's interesting is in this psalm, he begins verse 1 and verse 9. He ends with God. Everything and finding out who we are surrounds, goes about, what about you and God? So we, in order to find out about myself, if people say, I need to find myself, then you need to find God. I need to know myself better, then you need to know God. Because when you find and know more about God, you'll understand yourself a whole lot better. And in this text, you can imagine David as a lad sitting in the fields, you know, in those nights where it's so dark, and you know what it's been like, where you go upstate or you go someplace, you go out west, and you go out and you see the stars, and you consider, maybe, maybe we should all do this, Maybe we should pause and do a little bit more considering. 
and go out at night and just look at the sky. And you get amazed by all this panorama that God has created. And consider and to think about what that means. Well, David did it as a lad, as a shepherd in the fields. When he was out there and listening to the bleeding, the buying of the sheep, making sure they were safe, he had time to reflect. And as he reflected, he comes up with some conclusions about God. And his conclusions in this text that help him to understand himself better starts with this idea that God is far greater than any of us. This is a message that I wish the university teachers would all understand. I wish our politicians would understand. I wish all the scientists and all those who claim to have great knowledge, I wish they'd understand God is far greater than all of us. In fact, as the text goes through, he talks about how God is so great and he reveals about God's character. You understand, you who study the Bible, you understand that nicknames were given oftentimes, and we do it today, but the nicknames were given in the Bible based upon traits, appearance, character. We do that when kids get older. We kind of pick up nicknames based upon something we might have done or said. Well, God has names that are revealed like the name Jehovah Jireh. That's the name of God when Abraham said, when he was asked by Isaac, what are we going to sacrifice? And he says, God will provide him a sac- himself a sacrifice. When, when we read about Jehovah Rapha, this is that idea that God heals. When all of a sudden God told them, you come out of the land of Egypt, and if you follow me, I will heal you of those diseases of the Egyptians. And so God's names are are brought out to reveal his character. And the psalmist says, as he's talking about that, he says, oh Lord, how excellent is your name. Well, I know lots of people use the name of God for cussing, cursing, and vows and oaths. We understand people do that. They take the name of the Lord our God in vain. But the psalmist paused as he reflects upon God and his greatness and looking up in the sky and considering God's handiwork, he says, Lord, you are absolutely excellent. The word means literally, you are, you are awesome. You are amazing. Back in ancient days, it was used where all of a sudden they would see this huge building. We're used to those huge buildings. Where he used to skyscrapers. Can you imagine if you take somebody from David's period and brought them up into history and all of a sudden plopped them down in the middle of New York City? One, they'd be terrified. Two, they would be amazed by all these buildings and they would say, majestic, amazing, impressive. And that's what he says when he looks at creation. He says, God, you are, you're inspiring You're amazing, God. You're absolutely beyond anything that I can relate to. You are phenomenal. He sees that in God's character via his name. But he mentions in the text that it is clear through creation. He makes several statements about creation, how God created. And and, and he makes these comments, as you already read it with me, where he talks about your heavens. In other words, it's not ours. This is God's holdings. It's like, this, is, this belongs, the heavens are part of God's pocketbook. They're part of his savings account, his checking account. They belong to him. He makes it very clear that as creator, you did this with your fingertips. It is interesting that most of the time he talks about how the arm of God is great unto salvation. 
the full arm of God. But this time, talking about how God created, you did it with your pinky just to show how simple it was for God to create. He says, I'm amazed by the fact that you put everything in their place. You ordained it. You designed it. You picked it. It didn't happen by accident or circumstance or happenstance. God, you put this thing together. He, he talks about how you made man. Don't you wish everybody would get the good dose of this thought? That man was made by God. Man doesn't make God. God makes man. Profound thought. Important truths come out of that where he says that you made man. When you just think about it, he says you made him even a little lower than the angels. We say, okay, that teaches us something. We aren't an accident of science. We were designed by God. God is the creator of it all. We were made a little lower than the angels. By the way, in the original, and if you pick up your commentaries and start, you're going to run into something. You're going to run, some of you might have a translation that does a little bit different. In the, in the original, it says Elohim, which is also a term meaning spirit beings, but also a name used for God at times. Sometimes it's used for little gods. We know it's angels in this text. How do we know that? It's not you made man a little lower than God. You made man a little lower than the gods. We know that because in Hebrews 2, where it quotes this passage, he uses the word angels, which sometimes Elohim referred to angels. So our conclusion is that, yes, this translation is absolutely right. You made man a little lower than the angels. And you think about that. Wow, people and, and, and angels, we're, we're two different races. We, didn't, we weren't angels and we won't become angels. We are distinct from them. As well, when he says that we're a little lower than angels, he says, but we're higher than the animals. Do you realize what that means? We're the in-between. When God made us, we are, he made us uniquely different. Different than the animals, different than the angels. And, and that's really simple to understand because angels are spirits without bodies, eternal spirits. Man is uniquely both a body and an eternal spirit. Animals are bodies without eternal spirits. And so man's then in-between. And God says, you know, this is a work of my creation. And the, the, the author of the book says, David in the field says, man, your creation just makes it clear. You are absolutely far above us. In fact, he goes on, he says in this text, that children make it very clear that God is amazing. Not only creation, not only God's names, but children. Out of the mouth of nursing children, out of the mouth of toddlers, very clear in the Hebrew what he means, you have ordained, some of our translations have strength. The idea seems to be that's that sense of strong praising, strong declarations about God. You have ordained the praises because of the critics. You have ordained them that they, they, the children would speak and they would silence the critics. By the way, do, would you accept this fact that there's a lot of people who are critical of the Bible? in the world, that a lot of people are critical of God, that there are people who would ignore or forget about God, would you think that that's true in our world today? And what's amazing is children often bring adults to a standstill. Their faith is so simple. Adults, how can I believe that? It is, 
you know, it takes real profound thinking to believe all that. Even a child can understand God exists. You ask a little kid, where is God? He's in my heart. They have such simplicity in their faith that they're able to understand things. And sometimes they stop us short. Didn't we forget to pray? Aren't we going to church? You know, those things that kids say that sometimes, you know, that they challenge us. And sometimes they silence the critics. They have such great insight. There's a book that's entitled, you know, The Letters to God Written by Kids. In their handwriting, which makes it even more sweet, that you read these. Let me just read a few that excerpts from that book that kids are writing letters to God. Dear God, my mommy told me all that you do. Who doesn't when you go on vacation? Dear God, my favorite prayer is the Lord's Prayer. Did you have to write it a lot or did you get it right the first time? I have to write everything over and over again. What about you? Dear God, if you watch in church next Sunday, I will show you my new shoes. (laughs) Dear God, my turtle died. Is he there with you? If so, he likes lettuce. (laughs) Dear God, thank you for the baby brother. But what I prayed for was a puppy. Can we trade him in for the puppy? Dear God, can you please send Dennis Clark to a different camp this summer? Dear God, please send me a pony. I never asked you for anything before. You can look it up. Dear God, please put another holiday between Christmas and Easter. There is nothing good in there right now. Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not have killed each other so much if they had different bedrooms. It works for me and my brother. Dear God, if you give me a genie lamp like in Aladdin, I will give you anything you want except my money and my chess set. Dear God, please don't come back before the next Cars movie comes out. (laughs) That could be written by a whole lot of different ages. Dear God, there isn't school in heaven, is there? (laughs) Dear God, in school they said Thomas Edison invented light. But in Sunday school, they said, you made light. I bet Edison stole your idea because you would never steal from him. (laughs) Dear God, my dad says you are bigger than anyone. Does that mean you're bigger than Shaq? Dear God, are you a ninja? Is that why I can't see you? Dear God, I don't ever feel alone since I found out about you. Dear God, I don't think anyone could, e- could ever be a better God than you. And I'm not just saying that because you're God. <laughs> Kids can say some of the most profound thoughts. And they can stop people, even the most skeptical individuals. It's like Jesus when he was riding into Jerusalem. And as he's riding into Jerusalem... The Pharisees and the Sadducees are so mad. Everybody's calling out, Hosanna! Hosanna! And it specifically says in Matthew 21, the children are calling, Hosanna, son of David! And they come up to Jesus and say, you got to stop this. And he says, doesn't the psalm say that out of the mouth of children, and he quotes this passage, and it shuts down the Pharisees momentarily. I was reading an account about a little girl who is reading her Bible and her neighbor who is a skeptic. He doesn't believe in the Word of God. He's very critical of that. He saw her reading her Bible. 
out front in the yard. And so he came up and he was just going to challenge her why she was reading the Bible. And he walked up to her and he said to the little girl calling her by name, he said, do you read that book often? Yes, I do. Do you like that book? Oh, I sure do. Do you believe everything in that book? Yeah. It's God's Word. He says, oh, you, how, how then can you explain somebody being swallowed by a whale and living? It wasn't a whale. It was a big fish. And he says, yeah, but how could somebody have possibly survived being in the belly of a big fish with the stomach acids and the darkness and the lack of air? And she said, I don't know. When I get to heaven, I'll ask him. And the man said, well, what if he's not there? Then you ask him. Okay. Yeah. Children can be very profound at times. And he says in this text, they understand about God. And he pauses and he says, what is man? When you are so big and so great and so majestic, what is man? He, he makes it clear God is above us. He's powerful. He's great. He's our creator. But he goes on and gives another reason why he's praising God. He says, not only is God greater than us, but in the second part of the passage, he says, God is gracious to us. God is gracious. Now again, remind you, he's looking up at the night sky. And if it's like you and you're looking up at the night sky, you are amazed by all those stars. You're amazed by all the brilliance of it. You know, when you stop and think about it, that if we on a clear night where it's unhindered by other things, we can see maybe to the naked eye, we see 3,000 stars. And we're impressed by 3,000 stars, are we not? When you start thinking about that in the Milky Way, they estimate there's over 100 billion of those stars that we can't see. And then we start thinking, wait a minute, the moon is so close at times, it feels like you can just reach up and touch it. Well, it's you know, 240,000 miles away. You could get there. If you walked in a straight line to the moon, if it was like on a ladder or a straight road, it, you could get there. If you walked 24 miles a day, you could get there in 27,000 years. Okay. That's how amazing creation is. When you start thinking about it, if we could go the speed of light, we could get to the moon in 1.5 seconds. In just a matter of minutes, we could get to the sun if we could go the speed of light. If we could go the speed of light, it would take us four and a half years to get to the nearest star beyond the sun. If we were to go through our entire Milky Way, all of it, from one end to another, at the speed of light, it would take us 100,000 years. And that's just the Milky Way. The Milky Way, which is just one in a billion of galaxies that are observable. Amazing! How wonderful and how brilliant that creation is so massive. And so David is standing out there and he says, God, you are so, so mighty, so amazing. You can only see a little bit. You and I who have telescopes and all this information, we should be more impressed by how amazing God is to create such a massive amount with just a spoken word. But David's sitting there and he's looking at all this and maybe this is you. When you sit there and you look at the stars, not only do you think about how great it all is, but don't you think how puny I am in comparison to all this? In all of this creation that is so massive, I mean, just think about it. There's the earth compared to the other planets. Just that small little spot there on the bottom left-hand side. 
And then you expand it and say, there's the earth compared to the sun that God created. And then you expand it and say, okay, compare the sun with the next biggest stars, and our sun is only one pixel on that screen. And God created all that. Are you beginning to feel puny and small? And like, wow, I'm not even a speck on that thing. And then we start saying, okay, what about the world's population? How do we feel in comparison when we think that there's 7.6 billion people right now on planet Earth? And we're only just, we're one, just me. And the, and the psalmist is saying, when I think about this, when I think of how amazing all this is, you would think about me? When you have all of that creation, when you have all of those people, you would think about me? He, he makes that comment. He says, you know, that you would think about me? I'm so small. It's like the British, popular British leader in the government several years back was taking his child to do a tour of Westminster Abbey. And the little girl was always thinking about how great daddy is and how big daddy is and how popular daddy is. But when they're in this massive cathedral walking through, all of a sudden she stopped. And she's looking at the ceiling and she looks at her dad and she looks at the ceiling, looks at her dad, looks at the ceiling, looks at her dad and says, honey, what are you thinking? She says, I'm finally thinking how small you really are. <laughs> yeah, we really are small. And yet the passage says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Literally, God, what am I, who am I that you would remember? That's the word mindful. You remember me? You think about me? In all of these people, in all of this massive creation, you think about me? And he goes on in other texts and he says, How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they are more in the number than the sand. When I awake, I'm still with thee. You think about me? God, when you have all of these good people, you would think about me? When there's all in America, all in this, in this, in this entire globe, you think about me? Yeah, he says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected or promised end. Then shall you call upon me, you shall go and pray unto me. I will hearken. You think good towards me? You're not against me? You're for me? Amazing. That's grace. That God would even consider you and me, who quite frankly, who are we? Who are we? And God thinks. And not only does he think, it says, and you visit man, the son of man, you visit. Literally, the idea of the word visit is you care about. You care about man. And he uses son of man, an interesting Hebrew word when he uses man. He uses not Aram, but he uses a word that has the idea of frailty, weakness, inosh. The idea of mankind when they're, when they're struggling is the typical context. And he says, you think of something that is frail? You and I, when we think about things that, are, that we would make, we would get rid of the runt. We would get rid of the broken piece. We would get rid of that which isn't up to snuff. Or we would redo, rewrite, repaint. But God doesn't. He takes Enosh, broken, frail individuals, 
And by the way, we are definitely a nosh when you compare to creation. We are just this compared to the mountains and the skies and the oceans and the space and the stars. We're just this little blip. And God thinks about us. God is concerned about us. God cares for us. And his thoughts even, and it's the, it's the old thought that we bring up, but such a profound thought, God notices everything about you. He knows you, watches you, knows the number of the hairs in your head. Wow. I thought everybody forgot about me. I thought I was ignored by people, not by God. Not by God, the psalmist says. And he says, wow, this is amazing that you're so gracious. And not only are you gracious in thinking about us and, and caring about us, but God, you were so gracious that you trust us with your creation. He talks about it in the text, right? That he has made us a little lower than the angels, but above the animals. And what has he done? He's given us dominion, it says in verse 6. You made him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. You put all things under his feet. That God would trust us with creation? I mean, would you trust your kids in their immaturity with your china? With your check? With your car? With your phone? And he says, God, this is what you've done. You made us so unique. We are different than the angels. We are different than the animals. Oh, that, that creates confusion. When he talks about this idea that he, he makes comment about the fact that you crowned him with glory and honor. In ancient days when there was somebody who was a messenger for the king, they would often host the banquet. If this person came and he was representing your authority, they would hold banquets and they would often put a laurel wreath upon their head to signify that they were the celebrated one who represented the greater authority. And he talks about how we are crowned. We are given something that, is, that makes us distinct from all the rest of creation. Well, you and I know exactly what that is. He talks about that in Corinthians. What has God given us that makes us different than the angels and the animals? He has made us in his own image. That makes us distinct. That we are different than anything else. The image of God. Now, some of you say, well, what exactly is that? I don't fully understand. I don't fully pretend to, to know but I do believe that the summary of it is a combination of these things that makes us different than angels and different than animals and in the image of God. That makes us distinct. We have an, a never-ending spirit. Animals do not. Never-ending. Once we are born into this world, we are going to live forever and ever. Someplace, somewhere. I think as well, we have the ability not to just think but to reason logically, to make choice. Oh, I understand that some animals can be trained or for, for basic needs they can make choice as well. But ours is higher. We have a moral compass to make moral choices. Every person has conscience. Everyone. 
we as well, we have the ability to create like God created. Not in the same power, but we have the ability to create artistically. To be able to put together music or writing or the arts. Animals don't have that. They don't have, well, some people claim they do and then they make that modern art because they swished with their tail, you know, in the paint. But you and I know better than that. To be able to create artistically. We have the ability, the capacity to have in-depth love relationships. We have the ability to recognize, to respond to, to worship and engage in a personal relationship with the Creator. Makes us all this combined, makes us unique. That God would make us and give us this. This is grace. This is grace that He thinks about us. This is grace that He entrusts us. This is grace that He allows us to have a relationship with Him. It's grace. And so the author is profoundly impacted. There's a story that comes out of Indian lore. American Indian, Western lore, about an Indian finding an eaglet egg that hadn't been hatched. But apparently the nest was abandoned, so he took the egg and he brought it back to the village and put it in one of the nearby prairie chickens' nest. The eaglet was hatched. And as time went by, that eaglet was adopted by and adopted the prairie chicken family. And it wasn't long as that eagle was growing up. That eagle was scratching for the worms and and for the bugs. That eagle would flap its wings once in a while to go two feet, three feet. That eagle was acting like a prairie chicken. One day after years had passed and this eagle was getting older, this eagle all of a sudden looked up and saw flying through the canyon this beautiful bird, majestic and soaring without hardly ever moving its wings and just on the breeze looked so absolutely amazing. And the, the eagle asked one of the older prairie chickens, what is that? Oh, that's the king of all the birds. That's an eagle. The most majestic, the mightiest of all the birds. Don't worry, you'll never be like him. You're one of us, a prairie chicken. We'll never be that great. And the eagle went back to living like a prairie chicken. The fable was to teach the idea that people often limit themselves. I guess, you know what? We have never lived in a day where people have swallowed that fable like they have today. They have accepted the idea that we are just like the animals. But God has made us to soar. We are above the animals. And you know what? When people keep their eyes looking downward and focused on we're better than the animals, we're better than the animals, you don't go very far. But when you turn your eyes where you're supposed to and look at God and realize we are a part of his creation and we were the epitome, the pinnacle of what he created to be here on this earth. If we would look up, we could soar. And understand our purpose, our motive in life. That it is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. To worship God Almighty. And the psalmist is saying, this is where I'm at. I have realized that I am a part of your creation to whom you've been very gracious. What am I? Who am I? 
well, I'm below God. He's more powerful and He elevated me. He's given me a position where I could have a real relationship with Him if I would just accept the fact that He is my Savior. I'm not God. I'm not perfect. I'm below Him. But I'm above the animals and I have to have forgiveness in order to have that home with Him forever and ever. And so God, I realize how absolutely grand you are. I realize how gracious you are. And I'm amazed. I'm absolutely amazed that you would pay any attention to me. In years gone by, the the Jewish community used to have a way of trying to communicate this. And they would give two cards. And they would have, when they got together and they thought about these things that were profound, they would have these two cards with a sentence written on each card. And they were to be read in tandem so everybody would understand who we are in light of God. And the sentences that were on the card read this. I am a worm. The stars were made for me. If we would know our place, if we would understand, we are not the greatest thing in the universe. And we have a gracious God who wants to give us life and fellowship with him. If we would just admit we aren't that great. In fact, if we would admit we're sinners and we need a Savior, then we would be able to rise to the point where we can bring glory to God, the glory that He deserves, where we could worship Him the way that He wants to be worshipped. So the psalmist puts it all together and says, that's why I'm writing this psalm. God deserves to be praised. By the way, it shouldn't be you know, that some praise Him, but we should be praising That's the psalm. That's the purpose for a psalm. A psalm is a song of praise. It was written to get us to sing praises to God. But can I close with this? This psalm means more to you who are living in this time period than to David when he wrote it. It should be more. I I, to correct myself. It should mean more to you. Why? Because there was a meaning behind this psalm that David didn't fully understand. But you can because you have the whole word of God. You see, this psalm is quoted several times in the New Testament. It is a psalm that refers to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. It is used in three different occasions to tell us about the Messiah. We, David didn't, uh, probably didn't know all of that completely, but we do. We do as we look further into the psalm, we see that this is giving us a portrait of Jesus Christ. I already referred to it, that in Matthew 21, when Jesus is coming in on Palm Sunday, that he quotes this passage about himself, that even the children would lift him up in praise. It is also found in Corinthians, where he's talking about that idea that one day Christ will establish a kingdom, that the men sang about a a moment ago, that there is a kingdom that Jesus will establish here upon this earth, and in 1 Corinthians, where it talks about that idea of Jesus ruling, it says one day he will put all things under his feet. Referencing Jesus will one day rule and reign in this world. And our prayer and our hope is that you will be there because you have accepted Christ as your Savior. But there is another passage. Go to Hebrews 2. And let's close with this text. Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2 is 
He quotes several of these verses from Psalm 8. And if you read this, it is amazing how he brings out that Jesus Christ is portrayed in this psalm. In Hebrews chapter 2, he's talking in the text and he says, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you visited him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of thy hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he had put all subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not all these things come to pass. So the first part of those verses are an entire quote from Psalm 8. And then he says, but we don't see these things coming to pass yet. But we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. See what he's got here? He's describing the work of Jesus Christ. He's saying that psalm was secondarily a portrait a prediction of what Jesus would do. How that Jesus would become a man. How Jesus will eventually become ruler of all creation. But that still hasn't happened as the time of the book of the writing. It still hasn't happened yet in our day. But what we do see and what we do understand is Jesus suffered for us. He thought about us. He cared enough that he suffered. He even put himself in the place of death. And he goes on, he talks about it where he makes that comment. He says that he, Jesus, by the grace of God, tasted death for every man, including you. That he died in your place, for it became him for whom are all things, and by whom all things are, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. What's he mean by that? The word captain, archagos, is the idea of somebody who pioneered, who opened the way, who made it possible. And he's saying, Jesus has made it possible by his dying for you, giving his life on the cross and then resurrecting, made it possible for you to have eternal life. And Jesus was finally able to to ascend up into heaven as he finished his sufferings. The point of the passage is Jesus Christ is the one who gave the, the means, the way of salvation and provides us an example of how we should live to the glory of God. This text, of all, of all texts, should mean more to the Christian than anybody else. Because you see Jesus in this passage. You see Jesus right here.